0: You're tuned into 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Mohammed Jarada from the Department of Anthropology. Welcome to the show, Mohammed.
1: Hey, hey, how are you? How's it going? Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's great. I'm so glad you're here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Beautiful day in Berkeley today. Yeah, yeah.
0: Weirdly, unseasonably warm when we're interviewing this in January. I know, I know. Or doing this interview in January. Yeah. So I'm so glad uh, to have you on here. I don't think I've had anyone from the Department of Anthropology yet. And so I'm really interested to hear more about your research. I'm also really interested to hear about your research because I saw that you do a lot of it in North Carolina, which is where I'm from. Could you just kind of introduce us a little bit to what you're doing, what your research is?
1: Yeah, sure. So... My research essentially takes civil rights as its uh, focal point, but it does so by expanding our understanding historically and in the contemporary about how civil rights is practiced within local communities and how civil rights gets shaped within legal, political, and social discourses throughout uh, post reconstruction United States of America. So what I try to do in my research is look at certain communities, certain racialized communities, in particular communities who are criminalized to see how they have used and construed the concept of civil rights and how that has been developed historically since, again, the late 19th century up until the present. Um, And I do this in particular by trying to look at certain uh, security documents, because what I'm trying to do with the civil rights focal point is expand our understanding of civil rights beyond questions of voting, political participation, et cetera, et cetera, and to think about how communities could protect themselves and defend themselves against things like hate violence and austere surveillance from the government or something of that sort. Wow. So your research is very
0: relevant right now, right? It's uh, You're getting a lot of news stories that could
1: probably be something you could look at for your research. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, right now, civil rights is... Certainly, a hot topic to discuss. I think it's sometimes it's overdetermined uh, and misplaced about where it could be talked about or addressed publicly. What do you mean by overdetermined? I think that sometimes when we talk about racial struggles in the United States um, or communities who are criminalized by law enforcement agencies, oftentimes civil rights gets tokenized as the only resource or only form of recourse that these communities can seek. I think that it's important for me in my dissertation and in my research is to kind of delimit that space of what civil rights can do for these communities and the limits of what it can do for these communities as well. Sorry, but can you just uh, say what you mean specifically by civil rights then? Yeah, so the way I understand civil rights and the way I construe it as a both as a, a historical concept and as a legal concept in my dissertation is something that is particularly referring to certain legal entitlements that are that is offered by the state uh, or by the federal government or by um, depending on the time or era you're speaking about by state government. And so when I say civil rights, I say the particular legal entitlements that a citizen or a non-citizen for that matter is given by the state generally. And And historically uh, speaking, and this is where it gets kind of confusing or complex, it's differentiated, especially by the Supreme Court, by two different uh, kinds of rights. There's So there's civil, there's social, and there's political rights. And so oftentimes the Supreme Court, at least in the post-Reconstruction era, they differentiated these three different kinds of rights in order to address how they should matriculate Former, formerly enslaved people into the national uh, citizenry. So the, the, the goal of civil rights is to ensure those legal entitlement ne- legal entitlements that um, that are essential to being a, a citizen or living in the United States. Okay and
0: so you're saying that maybe the other rights that you talked about are not as emphasized and could be more important to the
1: discussions that we're having. Um, and racial justice and social justice issues. Precisely. So, I mean, these are discussions that are happening within political activists, social activist communities where civil rights is often not really uh, a significant part or it is a significant part, but the problem with civil rights is the legal regimen in order to get some kind of redress or get some kind of cure for a, a political, social, or legal injury. So, for example, if a civil rights of mine is transgressed, in order for me to get that remedied, I would have to go through a large and extensive legal process that is, is, is a headache. And so there are these other kinds of rights, particularly social, political. There are things like economic rights, too, that people are construing on the local level as well to think about different ways or different forms of recourse that these communities could find in times of need or in times of vulnerability. Okay, and so civil rights, we're saying we have to go
0: through legal channels uh, to address um, injustices or to make sure that people have these civil rights, but these other rights, political, economic, social rights, these are things that are addressed outside of court systems? Uh, well,
1: no, the, the, they're so they're outside of court systems in the sense that they could be used or addressed or spoken about outside of legal processes and court systems precisely, but they're highly defined by and created and constru- constructed out of the Supreme Court, essentially, because, or, or legal debates um, that were happening or presidential debates. So a part of my research is looking at this really funny early debate between this guy named Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. So before Abraham Lincoln was, The president of the United States, he was running for uh, the the senator in in Illinois, and he ran up against this kind of robust racist Stephen Douglas, who truly believed in the institution of slavery. And so it's in these debates. These are really famous debates where the idea of social, political equality and rights somehow gets differentiated from um, legal, um, civil equality, rights and entitlements. And it's so 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 they're constructed within these legal uh, these legal arguments, these political debates, the court system. But they are they have a more expansive capacity or they're more expansive in the sense that communities can use them or address them or speak about them in a way that isn't limited by the courts, per se. OK, since it's kind of confu- it is confusing. It definitely is. But. It, 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 it's it's both confusing, ambivalent, and unstable. And for all those reasons, it makes political and social rights all the more contested, and 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 gives them potential to be used for these social justice or political justice initiatives. Okay, so uh, you do
0: you research specific case studies. Um, around this so could you kind of uh walk us through like a specific example that could help uh, illustrate you know the intersections of these rights and how uh communities
1: use different rights to address different issues sure so so the community that i work in particularly is in north carolina um and i've done research uh, across the south i've tried to do stuff in virginia and tennessee but i chose north carolina just because it's um it was a pragmatic decision that I made, and it's it's kind of high. It's been highlighted within public channels, especially within the communities I work with, which are particularly Muslim communities, because there was a, a kind of a, a brutal murder of these three Muslims uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, by this guy named Craig, Craig Hicks. And so after this um, kind of tragic situation, where these three Muslims, you know, Yosur uh, Dia and Razan, that's what their names, um, were murdered. The question about how to protect the community and what resources to use in this community to protect them was, you know, kind of got kind of exploded. It's like, how can these Muslim Americans protect themselves both from the fact that they're being surveilled by the government and at the same time being, you know, hurt, murdered, assaulted, Vandalism on their on their religious spaces, etc. And so, what I do with this community, or what I examine in particular, this community, is the kind of language they use and the kind of resources they use. And and essentially, I, I get to the to get to the nitty gritty and to reduce it to one element. It goes back all all the way to the question about civil rights and how they're differentiated from things like political and social rights. And so, for example, this community wants to protect themselves from, let's say, the possibility of their space being vandalized. So what do they do? Some communities find recourse in law enforcement. So some communities, say in Raleigh, North Carolina, are engaging with uh, federal and state law enforcement, particularly the FBI uh, and local police departments, in order to protect themselves. And the language that they're using is civil rights, but on the side of things, they're talking about how and how they could actually protect themselves socially and politically precisely because the state or the federal government hasn't done their job in order to protect themselves or those civil entitlements that they're given isn't sufficient to to take care of themselves so how do they wield this concept of pol- political and so- social rights is what i try to look at and what i what i my conclusion essentially or one of my conclusions is that political and social rights get, gets used to secure these communities and it gives them impetus or motivation to take seriously their security, like quite literally. So they, they buy CCTV cameras. They, they go through the process of getting a license, a, a, a permit to carry a, a handgun. They are highly aware of their spatial awareness and they take part in social initiatives to mend relationships between themselves and other communities, or they take on uh, political initiatives to make sure that people are voting for whoever they are, they desire to vote for in a place like North Carolina, which is a is a heavy purple state. You know, North Carolina, when, when Trump won for the first time, he won by 0.5%. And so- it's these initiatives that they're focusing on, these social initi- initiatives and these political initiatives that focus on their security, right? That focus on the security not only of their physical livelihood, but the security of their religious practice that is outside of this boundary or this limited space of what we know as civil rights. Okay, right. So, your going through
0: the materials that um these groups uh like muslim american groups in north carolina are putting out to um both in like legal documents and just in uh materials that maybe like pamphlets they're handing out or like materials they're using to communicate with other groups or within their own group
1: and you're just kind of seeing the language they use and seeing the strategies they use precisely yeah i mean i mean you're a great listener i mean that's (laughs) That that is exactly what they're doing. They're, I'm, I'm, I, that's exactly what I'm doing as a researcher to kind of hone in on those those like little sensibilities, those strategies, uh, those relationships that they create that are, can't be reduced to simple simple civil rights or c- civic participation. Right? There's something far deeper, and there's a, a deeper motivation, and there's a bigger stake at hand when we think about political and social justice in the United States for racialized and criminalized communities like Muslim Americans. The majority of Muslim Americans I, I worked with were either brown or are black Muslims. And so this was a heavy topic at hand that constantly got discussed um, in a lot of the meetings and interviews I had with my interlocutors. So you're I saw also that you
0: kind of look at things from a historical perspective. Um, so what were... Was there like a big change? You mentioned this specific event in Chapel Hill. Was there like actually really a big change in the way the Muslim uh, community in North Carolina started interacting with uh, other groups and started um, looking at themselves? Like, what were what were kind of how was it? Uh, how did they view themselves uh, before the incident?
1: And like, what was what were really the changes we saw afterwards? Great question. So, I, I mean, should can I address the historical part? Um, yeah, definitely. So, historically, I try to, historically, again, I said I look at Supreme Court cases and see how civil rights gets construed, but I'm also attentive to the fact that, you know, North Carolina is, is a southern state. And so, as a southern state, we know that racism and uh, racialization functions in, pervasively, it's it's a it's a huge part of a of a state like north carolina the first thing i remember when i got to north carolina and i first went when i was in 2017 in the summer of 2017 and i went to durham i got to durham i went on the bus and the first thing i noticed was that everyone on the bus was 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 a black person and everyone near the bus station which is near downtown durham um right next to duke was white and so from from the outset you could tell that there's these there are these Forms of racism or racialization or segregation that was just inherent to this part of the country, and so the historical part both looks at you know Supreme Court cases, reading those cases, trying to figure out how civil rights and social rights and political rights were construed. But the other part is being attentive to these these kind of ghostly s- specters that still reside and are still have vestiges in a place like the American South. And so I try to attend to that part as well in my research. But in terms of what had happened after the community had dealt with this big blow, this tragedy of the Yusuf uh, and Razan being murdered, there was a drastic change. I mean, this this is a this that event was a national event, not only for the Muslims in North Carolina at that time. I was in Boston. I was doing my master's degree at Boston and in, in, uh, at Harvard, and. Students across the campus were, were, were worried, they were scared. They, they felt a sense of anxiety about whether or not they were being protected. And this is in Boston. And so in North Carolina, when this had happened, and all of my interlocutors, the majority of which always point to this event as a threshold, security became the essential issue in this community about how to protect themselves. And the way they did it was they, they created relationships with law enforcement and they try to mend relationships with their particularly Christian uh neighbors, um and, and Jewish neighbors as well. And so you see a like a wave, a wave of like civic, political and social activism that's happening from the generation that grew up after two thousand and fifteen when this event happened. And so there was there were a lot of drastic changes after that event. And this was nationally, the like
0: Muslim Americans in general. This is uh huge event and it's shaped
1: across the country, not just North Carolina. Absolutely, and I, and I can only speak about the effects that have happened in places that I've lived. So North Carolina, Boston, and California now, where I've seen communities take this question about security far more seriously than ever before. Um, and that event was only a series of events that happened like the the, the Dylan Roof shootings in South Carolina at a, a Methodist church also was impetus the Christchurch Christchurch the Christchurch shootings in Australia were also an event that happened and so that event in particular focusing on Muslims in the United States pretty much changed a lot of the things and a lot of the ways that Muslims and mosques and the wider community thought about themselves and how they arranged their communal makeup And their spatial makeup. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You brought up um, a bunch of different attacks and different denominations, uh, different faiths. And then there was also the Tree of Life uh, massacre. Um, Yeah. Is this, uh, you know, thinking historically, is this an exceptional moment that all of these attacks are happening um, in these places of worship or in? on people specifically
1: for uh, their faith? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really hard to tell just because, I mean, historically, you know, speaking of black churches, black churches have been arsoned or been used as a, as a tool by the KKK in particular or other white supremacy and hate groups uh, to, be, to be arsoned or vandalized to um, foster fear and anxiety within black communities for a very long time albeit these things aren't reported or documented because when you burn something, it's, you know, it just disappears or we don't, or we don't have those um, or at least I don't have the resources to know um, historically about how these things have, have happened within the United States. But I can say that in the past two decades, I could say this, I could say that the events that have occurred within religious spaces, like, Murders, stabbings, shootings have had a kind of singular response that has been significant it, it's, it's a significant change in religious communities in the United States, I think, where these communities are now fully taking taking security in, into their own hands they're They're soliciting not only the help of law enforcement but I mean we could call them mercenaries like private security firms who take care of religious communities. There, there are now, I know of two security firms that are particularly focused on religious communities and they have a kind of like Christian, biblical uh, motivation, you know? Um, and so I know that in the past two decades, those events related to religious spaces have taken on this question of security far more serious more seriously so it's it's interesting you know as a muslim myself when i'm in a mosque and you see a man with a handgun that's something new that that isn't something that is uh that isn't something that i was always privy to or aware of or um i had to to care for growing up as um a young muslim in california so yeah it's so interesting to think about uh
0: you know, obviously, this danger in public spaces in general uh, is problematic and I you know and scary. Um, and uh, but I guess in particular, thinking about religious sites, um, you know, churches, mosques, synagogues, mm-hmm. uh, temples, the fact that um, people have to worry about this and have to think about security, when these spaces are supposed to be, you know, these welcoming spaces in general, you know, this is like a place where um, theoretically everyone could just come in and, um, you know, be welcome to worship. Um, So do you have any, um, has your research shown you anything about uh, the way that, you know, this, these new security, um, uh, you know, thoughts about security and, movement towards increasingly secure spaces mm-hmm. has altered that aspect of places
1: of worship. Wonderful question. I mean, you're asking a really great question, Andrew. I, I really appreciate this. Yeah. So this is an essential question that I'm trying to ask in my in my research about how is it possible that these traditions, right, these are religious traditions or like Islam, Christianity, Ju- Judaism, that's really kind of honing in on the question of neighbor neighborliness or being a neighbor with someone or helping someone out or being hospitable to people and attending to the poor, you know, and creating these virtues within a community, right? Things like charity, things like service. How do they do that? Given the fact that now mosques are, they quite literally, this one mosque in particular, the Islamic association, the Islamic association of Raleigh has built a, a, you know, fortified their entire space with, with a wall, uh, with a gate. And so it's, it's interesting to ask, you know, how the hell do, is someone going to know whether or not to come in space or feel welcomed in the space if there's a wall blocking them from this and if they're not already a part of the community? And so the conclusion I've come to or from the interviews I've had and the, the the people I've spoken to, it's really interesting. They, they believe that, or, and, and, I, and I would agree with them, that the, the, the construction of these walls, which creates a space or creates a division between oneself and, uh, or one's community and another community outside is actually the condition for hospitality. It's the condition for a healthy relationship to one's social world outside of themselves or welcoming, welcoming someone inside the mosque, right? So when you build a wall, one interlocutor would tell me, you're, you're doing something to invite people in ask questions and to be, to be provoked in a particular way such that they ask why is this Muslim community building a wall and for what reason or in the scenario where there was, there was cases where people would come outside the mosque wearing things like a pig uh, a hat with bacon and saying kryptonite for Muslims or s- stuff like that where they would stand outside of these, these, these mosques and imams would come and invite them in and so it's it's in this like really interesting scenario where you would think that building a wall and you would think that carrying guns and you would think that all these protective strategies that these communities are building and implementing are ways of pushing people away but for them it's actually a, a, an invitation to both ask questions and to to be welcomed inside the mosque so long as they're safe right so right. long as they're they're also Prepared in the situation in which someone wants to do something out of the ordinary, and I think that 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 is where we get to the question of political and social justice or political and social rights, where these communities take it seriously that the state or the federal and state government won't protect them in these everyday situations. You won't have nine one one won't come immediately, and so building these walls and holding guns, et cetera, et cetera, are both strategies to invite people in, strategies for hospitality, and strategies to protect themselves and their religious tradition and so that they can have some kind of psychic relief when they're praying.
0: Okay, yeah. So I'm really interested um, also, I think your research is uh, super interesting and like the content of your research is really interesting, but I'd love to know more about like what, uh it actually looks like when you go out and do research as an anthropologist so are you so you talk a lot about interviews so you're going actually into communities and um interviewing people but then you're also like looking at documents like how how do you choose what to look at how do you identify people for interviews yeah yeah just tell us a little
1: bit about that process yeah i should say first and foremost but you know i got really lucky i mean the community i worked with in north carolina we're probably the most lovely people I've met in my life. I mean, these people are caring, loving, welcoming, concerning, you know, highly political and socially aware people that really care about both the community that, are, that they live in, the non-Muslim community, and the communities they're a part of. And so for me, I was, my job was really easy. I mean, I woke up in the morning excited to do the research that I was doing. As an anthropologist, the first step for me is to gain some kind of trust between myself and this community, right? And that was kind of, I have to admit, it was easy just because my name is Mohammed, I'm Muslim myself, I speak Arabic um, and you know, I pray. And so I was first intending to kind of put myself within this community as a Muslim, right? And as a researcher, they knew from the outset that I was a researcher. I first what I first did was just attend a bunch of meetings. I mean, I would attend things from like random ass dinners to, you know, events about civil rights, to concerts, to gatherings, uh, social gatherings. I mean, fires. uh, uh, What are they? Bonfires. I mean, I, I, I went to everything for like the first four months. I mean, I was exhausted, but it was a lot of fun. And then people got to know me and I got to know them. And so as I started going to the more important events events surrounding questions about political rights or social rights or uh, activism or people running Muslims running for mayor or Muslims running for uh, political office when I went to these events that's when the questions started happening and because they knew me as a familiar face and and they were so kind they were so open to giving me giving me interviews and so and so when I would do these interviews they were just they were just a lot of fun, man. You know, you you know, you 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 get excited about these things, and these people are are as excited as you. Um, and the people I would talk to range from people who worked in tech to people who devoted their entire life to the religious communities like imams and other religious leaders, or people who owned subways, or people who were uh, financial advisors, or people who um, wanted to be lawyers, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so you get a diverse group of people all who are concentrated on this one task, security. And when you ask them and you provoke them, boy, are they willing to talk. The job of an anthropologist is, or the job that I took as an anthropologist for the way I see it is to kind of get, get to know these little social minutiae that, that surround these really important issues, right? Like you hear about these things on the news every day. You hear about these things on your podcast. You hear about these things everywhere, but, but nobody really knows what goes into those little, those little interactions or those little happenings in the everyday in order to protect the community, in order to garner your social, political, and civil rights. And that was my goal. And, and I enjoyed it very much. Well, unfortunately, it looks like we're running out of time. It's
0: been so great talking to you, Muhammad. Uh, Just a reminder today, I've been speaking with Mohammed Jurada from the Department of Anthropology about, uh, civil rights and other form of rights um, among different groups in America uh, with a special, with
1: a focus on Muslim Americas in the American South. Thank you so much for being on the show, Mohammed. Andrew, it's, it's been honestly my pleasure and I, and I really thank you for giving me the time and space to speak about our research and, and truly your questions were, were, were really great and I appreciate that.
0: Thanks for saying that. Uh, tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.